Today I welcome John Southworth, Principal at MPW Colleges in the UK. In this episode, I discover how some schools offer massive GCSE and A-level choice, the balance between skills and knowledge. I ask the question, is uni worth it? And COVID's impact on exams. You're going to kind of get on to Amanda Portman Woodward. I mean, just tell us a little bit about that, because, you know, for me, it sounds either like a, a firm of solicitors or some accountants. MPW was founded nearly 50 years ago, so 50 years ago next year, by three Cambridge graduates, Messrs. Manda, Portman and Woodward. And they wanted to create an environment that was very similar to the Cambridge college system with very focused pastoral care and small tutor groups. It started in Rodney Portman's front lounge. From then it has grown and grown and grown. And from being what was known as a traditional crammer, where students would come in for literally three months, crammed for an A-level or a retake A-level, we've developed and developed over many, many years. And over the last 20 years, specifically, we've become far more of a, a more traditional day school. So starting in year 10 to year 10, year 11, GCSE programs, and then A-level programs that we've bought it on over the years from additional international programs. Fundamentally, it's a, a London day school for UK students, but we again developed our international market and we're now about 25%, sometimes 30% international. It's unique in the way that it is not your standard school in any way. It is quite liberal in many ways. It's got, we have no uniform. Everyone's on first name terms. Very small class sizes. We max out at nine per class. And our sciences and arts tend to be no greater than eight. So small classes, very adult approach. Certainly giving our students real independence, or calling them students, first of all. So make them feel like they are on their way to university and success beyond the college, not just what the college delivers for them at the time. So it is quite a unique approach. I said, that's been going successfully for nearly 50 years. It must show that it's doing something right. And we had our inspection, our major six-year inspection, a couple of months ago. And the final result was published a few weeks ago. And we got the top grades again. And we got them six years ago, seven years ago. So we got two excellence again. And our report was, could not have been more complimentary about what we do. I mean, we have very clear sort of aims and ethos. And we sort of deliver what it says on the tin, I suppose. Like the Ronsell advert. We do what we say we're going to do. We do it well. We're non-selective. We get some really, really amazing results. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the admissions piece. So it's a non-selective fee-paying day school that specialises in the two years at GCSE and the two years at sixth form. And is it academic? Is it draw academic or is it broader than that? I think the initial draw is academia. I mean, we focus on academic success and giving you know, real value added. I think that's where we are the difference. When you're a small group, you can really focus on those individuals and get the very best out of them. So we have students who arrive to us who've been told they're not going to get grades, they're going to fail, they perhaps don't, aren't going to do very well. And they come down to us with quite low self-esteem, but they come out with some amazing results. And I celebrate three Cs as much as I do three A stars. I'm not a big one on stats, although they're very nice when we have nice stats, and we do have very nice stats. I'm not someone pushing those stats because I don't need to. You know, our reputation goes before us and most of our 
marketing is by word of mouth. I mean, we don't advertise widely, we don't need to. But we run these very, very specific courses. Students are joining year 10. Year 10 is a very general education year, bring everybody up to where we think they'd be in terms of national curriculum at the end of year 10. But then everybody then moves on to our one-year intensive GCSE courses. And we run 27 different GCSE courses. So they can do all those in one year. So that's why the maximum number we do is eight. And they can't cope with any more than eight in one year. Having done that, they move on to either our traditional two-year A-level program, and we run 45 A-level subjects. Or they could do, in addition to that, they could do GCSEs alongside A-levels if they need to take a few more or get some better grades. And then along with their A-level program, they might then in the second year take up one of our one-year A-level courses, where they do a whole A-level in one year. And all of our A-levels we offer as a one-year program as well. So the one-year A-levels are most popular with what we call our year 14 students. So students who come from very, very well-known, highly regarded schools who might have been predicted three A stars, but have got three Bs, missed their place at a top university, come to us for one further year, retake their A-levels over a year, and then get their three A stars, and then go to the university of their choice. And we've got a whole host of examples of students getting that success. And it is just lovely to see the turnaround that we can give to these young people. And we always sort of say, you know, don't sleepwalk into your future. Actually make a decision, even though it's a tough decision to do your A-levels again, it's worth it because you can invariably do much, much better. And it's the draw. It's phenomenal, the fact that you can offer 27 GCSE subjects, 45 A-level. I've got four kids, as, as everyone knows on this podcast. So I've been through the decision-making at GCSE, at A-level, and I know that the schools that, that my children are at are limited by what they have, and you either fit in and you've got to choose from a selection of it, and sometimes, depending on the way that the schedules are done, they can't do them all. And so suddenly I feel that my children are somehow compromised in where their passions lie because they can't because of timetabling. And also, have they got all of the subjects there that are going to make my child thrive? And I was a good example at a grammar school. I wasn't particularly academic. I was bright, but everyone was brighter than me. You know, I tended to have a personality and want to play sport. And if I wasn't going to be the best, I'd just sit back. But I was still stuck in a very traditional academic place where I kind of want to do creative subjects. And I was kind of told, well, well, why? You're not going to get a job of it. There's no career at the end of it. It's kind of, no, you've got to do these. How have you adjusted to that modern approach or the modern needs of families who kind of want that breadth for their child to thrive? I think that's why so many people come to us or look us up, because you know, I came into this sector 12 years ago. I came from the Perth School in Cambridge, which is very traditional, highly regarded, very, very selective, you know, one of the top schools in the country, but only offered about I know, 16, 17 A-level subjects. And I think what we offer is the whole spectrum of subjects and students can choose whatever combination they want. So a student like you, if they'd arrived here, if they want to do three creative art subjects, that's fine. We'll let them do that. They can do art, textiles and photography all at the same time as A-levels. And we would give them, obviously, advice of the risks of doing that. But if that's what they want to do, they do it. I've had students come here to do three languages. Again, that's fine. You're quite right. Most schools don't give that flexibility because they put all their subjects in blocks and you can only do one subject per block. 
So when we do our timetabling here, my timetabler pulls her hair out every year because I leave timetabling later and later. We literally timetable the week before term starts. And we guarantee that any student who's signed up to join MPW will get exactly the subject choices they want. Even if it's a group of one, we will run that subject. And I'm very blessed here that I've got the most amazing tutors. Many of them teach two, three, sometimes four different subjects. So that creates a lot of flexibility. But they're also very, very highly skilled tutors. They've been in this sector for a long time. I can't risk bringing in newly qualified teachers because they can't cope with the demands of suddenly being thrown over a group who want to do a one-year course at pace. You know, you can't meander here. You've got to go straight for it at speed. So with that quality of tutor and the ability to teach more than one subject, and they don't mind that they get literally the timetable the morning before they're due to start going their first lesson because they know they can walk into any class and they can teach it with absolute confidence. It's a bit walking on a tightrope sometimes. And our parents, often who have not been used to this type of sector, will often be contacting me continuously saying, can we have the title? We'll give the title. I'm going, no. They'll get the timetable on the day they arrive. A bit lastminute.com, but more successful. I would actually call it lean manufacturing. I mean, actually, all you're doing is adopting a very kind of efficient model there. That Those are the margins you operate with. The problem with education is we're used to things all being organised in advance and it is the way it's been done and that's it. It's the old separator, you know, right first time, cradle to grave. You only do things that are essential at the time. And where schools are wasting money and wasting time is by sort of putting things into stovepipes. This is how we've always done things. And then if they don't get the students in there, they're, they're wasting money. They're wasting class time. But here we do things right at the last minute. So we make our timetable as efficient as possible. You know, our class sizes are maxed out as best we can. So we don't have lots of small groups. We'll have lots of groups of eights and nines, agreed. But we try and make sure that our timetable is highly efficient and therefore cost efficient as well. Let's talk about A-levels. I mean, how do we ensure pupils are successful in A-levels? Have you ever been drawn into the BTEC debate as to whether or not they're better? I've written a couple of articles onto the argument between A-levels and IB. And there are a couple of similar colleges that have taken on BTECs. I've still been of the view that A-levels are the gold standard. They're highly regarded by all the universities, all the universities abroad, all of our international clientele rate them. I suppose I've not had a massive exposure to either IB or BTECs. I think they have their place, most definitely. I think BTECs definitely have their places like apprenticeships do. You know, I talked earlier about, you know, my uh, real interest in car mechanics and car maintenance. You know, when I was at school, we did a program of car mechanics, woodwork, metalwork and pottery on a round robin. And I loved all those things. And I think we've got to teach young people all these real skills because at the moment they will rely on their phone or Google or wherever it might be. You know, if they want something fixed, they phone somebody up and they get somebody to come and fix it without a simple plumbing problem, electrical problem. It costs £100 for someone to come to your front door. Where it's dead easy in these cases to actually fix it yourself with just a little bit of knowledge. So should we be teaching kids skills or knowledge? Because, you know, every single one of your students that doesn't really need their knowledge because they go onto YouTube and they can learn all these things. They can learn how to use a saw, a hand tool, a chisel, a wedge, and, and all those things because YouTube has actually enabled everybody to fix anything at any time. 
And obviously, when you're starting to to cram a one-year A-level course, it's surely all knowledge. There is no skill. Actually, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think you're right. I mean, we are we are cramming knowledge in those times, but you've got to have the basic level of intelligence when you're doing an academic subject. I mean, in terms of just following things off YouTube, you can't be actually doing something. I mean, I've always been a very much a kinesthetic learner and a, and a kinesthetic teacher. I remember my classes when I did DT, they had almost no notes whatsoever. You know, you see people notes now, lever arch folders full. My students got, always got straight A's and A stars, all got to top universities with no notes because what they'd done with me is they'd physically done these problems for real with real components, real wires, real transistors, real computer components, where it might be, and have built something and seen it work. And so learned then how to adapt, having used things for real, how to then put that onto paper. So I suppose it depends on what subject you're teaching, but I've always been one for teaching skills myself. And I think if you understand the skills, then that develops your knowledge. But there are, on our particular A-level courses, and our one-year GCSE courses, we are cramming huge amounts of information into a very short space of time. And actually, they need to have intellectual ability and capability to take in all that knowledge and then use it effectively. And we do that through lots of exam practice and exam technique teaching, rather than just giving them lots and lots of information. It's more about how do you use that information And you need to use your spare time, and they have quite a bit of spare time in our timetables. They need to use that time productively in doing the background work, the reading, the research, and then we'll teach them how to apply that knowledge. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. What are your thoughts about the relevance of universities and degrees? Because, you know, probably about 10, 15 years ago, there'd seem to be degrees for everything, right? And then the value of the degree sort of got diminished. There's now students being saddled with debt. You know, we got employers saying, well, I don't kind of need a degree necessarily as a prerequisite for employment. Yet schools, particularly where we're driving good A-level results, is a conduit to that next stage of currency, which is the university. I just wonder what your take is of it, because you obviously see a huge number of very talented, hardworking young adults come through your schools. And then their next step of their journey as an adult is either go to work with universities. Have you seen a shift? And what are your thoughts as to the value of a university degree? I'm so slightly torn as a parent of two boys who went to university and then teaching at a college that, you know, one of my USPs is the fact that we get everybody to really good universities. And that's what we do. That's why students come here. But I always say to students when I meet them and their parents, you know, it's not necessarily the be all end all. Because if they have got good skills in some fields, they can catch up with their university counterparts quite happily if they go into the right employment Without having the degree, they learn by, again, being at the coalface, being at the job. You know, clearly there are some careers that you have to have a degree for. Go to medicine, go into dentistry, go into maybe some form of accountancy. You have to have some fundamental knowledge and understanding and skills in those. 
that is, again, a must-come VAR, that sort of university, that formal course. Let's not call it university, let's call it some other formal education, whatever that might be. I am in favour in most instances in further education. I think it's important. But I think ultimately, our students need to be given choice. And all we can do as educators is provide them with all the options. And that's what we do here as well. We talk about apprenticeships. We talk about going to other realms of careers, not necessarily going to university, but also universities abroad, courses abroad, all the things they could do rather than just being, again, stovepiped down one particular route just because that's what everybody else has done. I think the one thing you do raise there is this massive debt they get saddled with, which is the size of a mortgage. One of my own children saddled now with a massive debt. And for two years of his course, he never went into university once because it was all through COVID. And he was doing creative subjects. He was doing graphic design. Didn't do anything practical in university at all. It was all online. Yeah, he got a very good degree and he's now got a job and he's a graphic designer. It's fantastic. And we're very proud of him. But he's got £70,000 worth of debt for that. I do sometimes question what do they get for their £9,500 of fees and all the money they pay for accommodation. Again, he paid for accommodation, which he couldn't even go into, didn't get a refund for it. My view is probably slightly twisted at the moment because I'm feeling for one particular person. To be saddled with that amount of debt is a really horrendous thought. Whereas, you know, our generation, you know, we got all this for, you know, relatively free. I mean, I was lucky that I went to university, was paid for by the army, I was getting a salary whilst I was there. So I was one of these very fortunate students. So that's not the best example. You know, when it was, going, you know, after rugby match, going down to the pub afterwards, I was the one who had the money. I had the car. I had an MGB GT, which I still remember these days. A white one. And I think at one stage I had eight people crammed into this MGB, taking them out to the pub for lunch uh, one day. And you did those things in those days. Crazy. But again, you, you were saying about this pull. And so it's almost a conflict because there's you as a dad with your sons going through university. We've obviously come out the back of a, a horrific couple of years from an educational point of view. And we, you know, we managed to survive education because technology existed. But it doesn't mean that it was the best for everybody. And obviously, university is about growing up and independence and living and trying all those things, the social side of it, not necessarily the outcome of the degree, because we know that employers aren't necessarily looking for it. So I can see that you're torn because of what you professionally do and actually having your sons go through that and seeing what it's like. My other son, he did um, paramedic science and he's now a paramedic. He's actually based now in Sydney in Australia. He couldn't have done paramedic science without doing that degree, but the degree was based around being in the ambulances, you know, two or three days a week, doing obviously the background medical training he had to do. To do that particular career, he definitely needed to do that further education course, no doubt about it. There is this pull that, well, everybody else has done it, don't we need to do it? And I think you're right that employers are no longer looking at the fact that, oh, they've been to Oxford or Cambridge or Durham as being the important thing. Have you got some good quality education background? Some employers now are even, I've started doing this myself, we're deleting off their CVs and off their application form all the information about their degree, where they went to, their A-levels, their GCSEs, and we're interviewing them on the person that you see in front of you. Are they the right fit? Are they the best person for this job? And hopefully, if we've chosen the right person, What they've got in their back pocket doesn't matter whether they got a third class degree from the University of Tiddlywinks in, you know, Outer Hebrides or something. 
if they are the right fit for that job and they're the right person and they get on you like them, then actually they can do a brilliant job. You should not be judging them on their sort of educational stats that they've got behind them. It's all about the person. And so, again, I get slightly torn by that. And I, I, I was not brilliant at A-levels. I've never been brilliant at exams. And if you judge me on my A-levels, you'd think, well, how could I be sat here now? But actually, I did a degree. I've got a very good degree. I've got you know, years and years of practical experience and so on. And that's what sort of hopefully makes me what I am now. Not the fact that I got particularly stunning A-level results. And I do think a lot of employers do that. I've always done that. I've never looked through their academic. It's more out of interest later down the line because you kind of want to meet them. Do they fit? There has to be a cultural fit. They need to have something about them, some talent. Yes, they do need some skills, but they need attitude and commitment. You get those things right. You can train most people if they have some basic sort of skills and habits and traits and character. Obviously, with your own experience with your sunny university, obviously the impact that COVID has had on education. You said it has been the worst education disaster in history, surpassing even that of World War II. What are the biggest impacts in education you personally noticed at school? Yeah, I think it's been the impact on these young people's mental health, the fact that they have not been able to integrate with their own age group, as you would do, as we did, as every other generation has. The impact has been that when we've had students joining us in year 10 or year 11, we've had some of the worst behaviour we've ever come across. They've not been in a classroom and understood during the years when they're going through puberty about how they should be behaving, how they should react to each other, how they should integrate with each other. And they haven't had that experience. And so we're having to reteach them that. And so they are getting behind in their personal development. And that's a key aspect of inspection as well. It's about pupils' personal development. And so we've, got, we've done a lot of work on that. And we've been successful with that. But they've had what an awful time. And teachers and parents have had this all the time as well. We've all been hit by this pandemic. The young people, I've got no doubt, have been hit the hardest. And it's going to take a whole generation, I think, to put this right. I think in good schools, you know, I class myself as a good school, we were able to deliver exactly what we would deliver in the class online. We had, in one particular lesson, we had five continents in the same class at the same time, all on different time zones. Students getting up at three o'clock in the morning in their home country to attend a lesson. We taught the full syllabus. We gave the full pastoral care. We did all the council support online. So we did everything we possibly could do to try and make their days as normal as possible. You still can't beat being next to somebody, breathing in the same air, although during COVID that wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> you know, but being there, seeing their eyes, seeing their reactions, seeing their body movements, so, you know, all these things create the right impression or a better impression of what people are. I mean, that's just been proved over generations. And John, how did you manage to sort of support your students, obviously, during remote learning? Again, it's an intensive course, some of your courses. So that on top of it being done remotely, obviously, the well-being side was, was a masterpiece. And I know that you guys did quite a bit there. What were the highlights of how you supported the students? We have a system of our directors of study. So where a school would have form tutors, our directors of study at MPW teach a very, very limited timetable. They might teach eight, 10 hours a week out of a 45-hour week. So the rest of their time 
they are able to dedicate that to their students' support and well-being. And so they were doing a lot more meetings online with their students, talking to them on a regular basis. So rather than the students dropping in to see them in the office and say, hi, how are you doing? It was done the other way around. The directors of study were contacting them saying, hi, I'm just contacting you, checking in, check you're okay. And then after a few minutes, the conversation developed and then they'd find out what the issues were and how they could support them. And we then put in as many support networks as we could, putting two people in contact, buddy-buddy systems, that type of thing, trying to run competitions online, just trying to get them engaged with each other, even more so than they probably do now that we're back in college. When they're back in college, they naturally bump into each other. You, know, you go around the corridor, they're always hugging each other, saying hi. You know, it's, it's a lovely atmosphere. It's a very friendly, welcome, sort of homely atmosphere. But when they were online, they couldn't do that. And I think it's been trying to get to re-engage them with each other. It has been one of the most difficult things we've had to do. But our young people are incredibly resilient. They are remarkable. Although social media can be very, very dangerous if it's not used correctly, when it is used correctly, it has really allowed our young people to engage with each other in a very positive, supportive way and quite a fun way. So even, you know, the old, you know, TikTok videos that I've been shown by people, that some of them are absolutely hilarious. And they've, they've got people engaged in doing some really silly things, hopefully safe things. But, you know, it do things in, in, in strange circumstances or original locations and, you know, just getting them thinking beyond the box. And I think when they have come back into college, I think actually we've seen some students with some new and novel ideas, which has been really quite encouraging that they've got that out of being locked up for two years. It's great to see the students themselves stewarding and coming up with ideas because we found that within a lot of schools is that we've put a lot of pressure on the teachers to continue teaching. But it's also been the resilience and the character of the students too, to be able to pull together and help themselves to it because it has been enormously difficult. With this summer looming, it looks like it's going to be the first year since we had the pandemic where exams are actually going to take place. Do you think this is right? Is it too early? Is it cut down? I don't know. Are the students ready for it? There's a two strands to your question. So let's deal with the last one. Are the students ready for it? Yes, they are. Certainly at MPW, they're ready for it. We do a lot of exam practice throughout the year. They've done already 11 formal SAT exams in each of their subjects. They are very, very well practiced in exams and exam technique being in an exam hall, knowing what the exam will feel like. So they're going into their exams confident. We've taught them all the syllabus. They've got plenty of course notes. We do lots of revision sessions. So are they prepared here? Yes, they are. And I think in many schools, they are prepared. And the exam boards did issue some guidance on what was going to be removed from the syllabus. I think that was not very well done. I don't think there was real clarity on that. Some of the things which were removed were essential to learn other parts of the syllabus. So you had to teach it anyway. And again, there was disparity across subjects and across exam boards, which should have been sorted out. So wasn't immensely impressed by the job that was done there. Is it the right thing to have exams this year? Yes, it is. I think it is the right thing to do. Is it the right thing just having exams? No, it's not. I was very vocal about this early on, that I believe that this year should have been a hybrid. We've been doing hybrid lessons all year. So this should have been a hybrid exam season. We shouldn't have gone back to CAGs and TAGs 
although I think they had their real value and I think they were correct, you were assessing what a student was capable of, not what they've done in the exam room, what they are capable of, because all the exam pressures will invariably make a lot of students perform not up to their ability level. I think this year there should have been a split. I think part of this year should have been done by teacher assessment and part of this year should have been by exam. And they should have set an exam. It's not difficult to set an exam paper. I mean, I could set an exam paper. You could set an exam paper in any subject you wanted quite easily. It doesn't take that much hard work to do it. Set an exam paper which is appropriate to everybody. I've got a college where all my students have been taught all the syllabus. But schools a few miles from here who have been in depravity, kids come from very low-income families who've had no internet, no computers, no ability to learn online. Is it fair that they are being judged against my students who come from very affluent backgrounds with all the ability to get all that information? No, it's not fair. Life is not fair, but this is not fair. And the government could have put this right by putting in place an exam that was fit for purpose, one exam paper that everybody did, which was 50% of the mark, and 50% which would be judged by a teacher, and then combine the two and come out with a grade that will be appropriate for that young person. So I get quite, see, quite strong feelings about this because I, I think it's wrong what's going on now. And I think, again, what could come out of this is that the independent sector could get slammed by external people because they'll say, here we go again, independent sector, best results in the country. Well, it's going to be that case because we have some of the best teachers. We have the ability to teach all of our students all the time. And we are very lucky because of that. But it's not fair to those other young people who have not had the same ability to access what my students have been able to access. Yeah, well, hopefully they will see some sense. I, I completely agree with you. And it shouldn't be because of your social class or wealth or the availability to draw resources to pay your way out, right? Because the people who can pay often easily pay their way out of any problem. So let's, let's see how it goes. Your school, obviously, very well equipped. Great to have you talk so passionately about what you do and how you're enabling an education for these sort of 15-year-olds to 18-year-olds to deliver some incredible courses. How far do your kids travel? Is it a small commuter distance? What's the furthest one of your students travels to study what they want to at your college? Up to two hours, two hours each way. I mean, I, I, I live on the South Coast. It takes me an hour and 45 minutes each way. I do that on a daily basis. I think I'm probably the member of staff who travels the furthest each day. But my students travel equal distance and they come to OVW because they've got choice and they have flexibility. We can design for them, develop any program they want, mixture of courses, mixture of uh, GCSEs, A-levels, mixture of programs, give them the parcel care they need. They come here because we can provide something which is unique to them. Our strap line is tailored, not uniform. And that's exactly what we do. We don't have uniform, but we tailor every program to a unique individual, whatever that program might be. No two students in this college do the same thing. So I think we've got a great future ahead by doing this. I was interviewing a parent only today and just before holidays as well. Parents have interviewed who are coming here specifically because they've got choice 
here and they don't have choice at the schools they're currently at. John, I know we could talk a lot more. We've covered some bits in STEAM and obviously well-being today, as well as everything to do with the academic side of education. It's been fantastic to speak to you. Thanks ever so much for finding the time. My pleasure. Very good to talk to you, Simon. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.